OzCert would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and any First Nations people listening today. We also want to acknowledge that these lands have always been places of learning and sharing of information, and that is the essence of this podcast. Welcome to the OzCert podcast. Share today, save tomorrow. I'm your host, Anthony Caruana, and for this episode, I'm joined by Cisco's global advisory CISO, Dave Lewis. We chat about bad cybersecurity habits and how to break them, as well as looking at how technical debt impacts cybersecurity strategy and response. Then it's over to my co-host, Beck, who chats with Mark Carey-Smith, and they take a look at the year that was 2022, what lies ahead, including new training courses, how OzCert can help first-time speakers come up with a topic so that they can be OzCert speakers next year, as well as getting us ready for the party to end all parties, OzCert's 30th birthday. How are you doing today, Dave? Very good, thank you. That's great. We're here to talk today about the bad habits that our organisations have when it comes to cybersecurity. You're out there in the world, you're talking to lots of clients and lots of different companies. What are some of the bad habits that you're seeing out there? Some of the bad habits that I see on a rather consistent basis are how organizations don't do a very good job of managing security debt within their organizations. And what that is, is a technological debt that's manifested as a security issue. And they don't really have a good way to handle projects that they've installed and no real sunset provision put in place in order to manage that project once it's past its end of life. And I've been in many organizations where we had these applications that would march on in perpetuity and unfortunately expose the organization's security issues. Another thing as well is the use of static passwords. They can tend to grab the headlines a fair bit. And it's a little bit frustrating in that respect because this is a deprecated notion when it comes to security. We've been dealing with it since about 1962 when a professor at MIT rolled it out as a control to keep students from stealing high-end compute time from each other. This was never meant as a security control. This was literally a knee-jerk response to a tactical issue. And here we are years later still dealing with it. And the problem I have with that is it's akin to a house key, a password that is. It does nothing to verify who's coming through the front door. It just means that that person has the key. This is where something like multi-factor authentication, endless technology, biometrics, all of these things are doing a far better job to verify who that user is before they gain access to resources. There's a couple of things I want to kind of dive into in that. The first one is, I didn't realize passwords were 60 years old. I've heard people technically say passwords are kind of like thousands of years old. That's fair. If you kind of talk about, you know, knowing the secret knock to get through the, you know, get through the drawbridge at the castle and all that sort of stuff. Who goes there? Yeah, all of that sort of thing. And, you know, and, you know, spycraft that we used to see in old movies and things like that. The guy who put the NIST guidelines around how to do passwords not that long ago, not 60 years ago, but only 20 or so years ago, has come back and said, yeah, those rules that I wrote back then, they kind of suck. We've got to do better than that. And he's kind of come back out now and said, I regret making all these rules like, password expiry and uppercase lowercase number symbol and you know long character strings and all this stuff that makes passwords incredibly hard and that creates a piece of that debt because all of a sudden people go you know what i'm just going to do password one two three and this month i'll change the a to an at and next month i'll put it back to an a but i'll make the o into a zero that kind of stuff i mean we've kind of made security hard for users and then we blame them for it don't we Uh, absolutely especially with the perspective of vilifying the users 
And this is one thing that I absolutely find frustrating is that, to be fair, I was guilty of this earlier in my career. I definitely approached it from, you know, the, how can the users be so foolish as to do X, Y, and Z? And I realize now in hindsight, I was wrong. I was categorically wrong. And in order to have better security, you have to enable folks to be able to be part of the solution. And you do that through democratizing security. And having, you know, poor passwords is really an unfortunate thing. But this is where we have to do a better job of educating users on how to create better passwords. We have to enable them in order to be secure. Because if we're being you know, quite candid about it, security is not top of mind for most people. It is not something that they think of straight away. You know, they get up in the morning, they have their coffee, and on their way, they don't think, oh, i got to change my password today. That never comes up. So if we're giving them tools like multi-factor authentication, passwordless technologies, or biometrics, something that is easier for them to use, although it still maintains a secure posture for them, that would be far better. So we have to really give them a way to democratize security so that they are not seen as part of the problem. We have to help them be part of the solution. But even things like MFA, I'm going to challenge you a bit on MFA because we we throw MFA up there and say it's for some people it's become like it's almost like the panacea to the password problem. They kind Mm. of see it that way. And we see it through, for example, the Essential 8 in Australia, which says they must use MFA. Otherwise, you know, the rain, you know, the rains of the gods will come down on you and you will be completely, you know, bereft of all security. But that just makes it harder because now I've got a password and a thing I've got to get potentially which is traditionally how people see MFA. It's like it's password plus MFA. But we, we're moving away from that towards this completely passwordless world, aren't we? Absolutely correct. So yeah. how does that work better for users? And then secondarily, how do we actually get that in so that it pays that technical debt or that security debt that we've got. So we're looking at it as an iterative process, right? We have people that use usernames and passwords. They understand that. And, you know, obviously they are times when they make poor choices as to the type of password. What we have to do is give them the steps to get to that better place. You can't just rip the Band-Aid off and say, okay, we're all going to be over here doing this now. We have to give them that staged approach. And that's why you have stuff like password managers. So they only have to remember a single password. All the other passwords are stored in that application. Then when you move to a multi-factor authentication, you remember the one password, and then it gives you the push in order to authenticate who you really are. So it is, yes, I understand that sort of logic flow, but it's getting to a better place. And when you get to passwordless, when you can use something like a YubiKey or something like that and just tap it and go, you know, the authentication is handled for you in the background. So the user never has to be part of that other than being able to tap a YubiKey that they control. So there's there's an assumption inside some of this mm-hmm. that says we're resourced well enough to do this, right? Because this is, I mean, it sounds great, mm-hmm. but it's pretty hard to actually do in the real world. Like if you go to an enterprise that's got potentially applications or platforms that have been around for 20, 30 years... And then you've got more modern cloud platforms, and whether that's PaaS or IaaS or whatever, mm-hmm. that's got a whole API world around it that lets you do some of this stuff. And you've got all these emerging standards around there like OAuth and all this other stuff that's out there. How do you deal with that complexity if you're not an enterprise? Like potentially a, a small business, a smaller business, or even a, a small trader mm-hmm. who is part of a much broader ecosystem how do you bring everyone along that journey? If Dave had a magic wand, what what command would he give to fix this? Well, it's it's never that easy. And the thing of it is, is nothing worth doing is simple. 
right? There has to be you know time invested in it. And in order to get you know smaller organizations to get to that place where they're doing a better job with security, you have to be able to give them the tools to move on. It's sort of like the analogy, you know, how do you eat an elephant? You know, one bite at a time. So you have to start somewhere. And within your organization, you have to identify what those risks are to your organization. You know, what's that expectation of loss in the event something goes wrong? So having that sort of mindset, you look at it and you can then prioritize within your organization what has to happen in order to get to that better place of secure, uh, being more secure. And yes, you're right. It's not as easy as, you know, wave the magic wand. That's definitely not, not part of the equation. But it is something that is imminently achievable. So being able to empower organizations, whatever their size, to understand that, yes, they can do it, that is definitely part of my mission as an example. So for the last two years, I've been doing CISO roundtables on average one per week. And more often than not, people say, oh, if I'm looking at zero trust as an example of you know, reducing risk in the organization, it, they get flustered because so many vendors out there say, oh, it has to be microzone segmentation, it has to be this, it has to be that. Really, fundamentally, it is about reducing risk in the organization, being able to identify those risks, to manage them, and reduce them. And it's we overthink things, we overcomplicate things because we can. And this is a real frustration because you know the smaller shops, you know the two to three people that are running their you know say a real estate outfit, they don't have the capacity to be able to handle security issues like that. So we have to make sure that we're enabling them to do a better job with what resources they have. And when they don't have those resources, we have to provide them with trusted partners that can help them get to that better place. Well, and that's, I guess, I was just thinking about your analogy of how to eat the elephant is one bite at a time. It's also invite good friends and share the meal. Fair enough, exactly that. And that is the partnership thing, isn't it? (laughs) It is indeed. Yeah. So you brought up their risk management. Is that, when you look at the organizations that you speak to, if you're going to take a general score across the board. Organisations actually good at information security risk management in general, or is it is it still a nascent thing where people are perhaps down the bottom of that curve of being good at it? It really depends on the, the outfit and the industry vertical they're in. So I can't paint a brush and say everybody's doing a great job or everybody's doing a poor job. It really varies from one organization to the next, and it depends on you know the resources that they have on staff. That you know, are they trained? Are they really good at what they do, or are these folks that are you know relatively junior in the in the field and they're still learning? And it's not to say anything bad about them, but it's to understand that they have a different perspective and they may not have the wisdom to understand what they need to do in order to better secure the environment. Are boards good at organize, like understanding information security risk? Because ultimately, risk management and compliance, it kind of it starts at the top with boards, and then it rolls down through the C-suite, and then it rolls down through the management layers of an organization. And eventually, there's some poor schlep sitting at a workstation who's got to do a thing, whatever that is, whether that's authenticate differently or, you know, use a different computer or they're forced to use some arcane device to make sure that they're secured in some way. You know, how are you seeing that the maturity of boards is getting better at actually saying information security risk management is business risk management? Yeah, I I see that is actually a move afoot because they understand that with all of the breaches that we're seeing, you know, and then when you factor in things like connect warfare that we're seeing in the world today, they realize that the risk is real. 
And they have to make sure that they're doing a better job to pay attention to that because otherwise, you know, their, their shareholders, their stakeholders, whatever it happens to be, are asking the questions because they're learning to say, wait a minute, is this secure? How is this data in, you know, encrypted and things like that? They're learning to ask those right questions because security by and large is learning to do a better job of communicating that to the audience that would not necessarily be our you know, audience that we dealt with in the past. We are very good at navel gazing and you know, talking amongst ourselves. And I think that we're now seeing a rather fundamental shift from security practitioners that are talking to parts of the business that just don't get security, but talking to them in the lingua franca they understand Mm -hmm. so that we're able to articulate. And that's why we talk in terms of risk so that they will better understand what the damages that they can expect in the event that something catastrophic happens within an organization. That's the big challenge, isn't it? Because people don't realize using a bad password as an example, and we've learned on passwords quite a bit in this, but using a weak password or a reused password that could have been harvested in some other breach that they may not even be aware of that's ever happened, mm-hmm. that then people don't realise that they're part of that broadest chain of what's going on in information security, do they? Like that, that whole supply... I mean, we talk about supply chain attacks mm-hmm. quite often, but we forget that we think of those in terms of, you know, government agencies intercepting equipment on its way to being shipped to people or we think about you know i think there was the apple example where there was a bad version of xcode that was released about 10 years ago or something that was being used by people to develop apps and drop them into the app store seemingly they were trying to do the right thing but the supply chain of what the the tool that was used they were using was compromised do people realize that they're actually part of that broader supply chain as individuals that what they do on that workstation whether they're a sole trader or someone inside a large enterprise does actually matter more broadly? It definitely matters broadly. Think about it as like the butterfly effect, right? You, you drop the pebble in the water, the ripples go out from there. <laughs> Something as simple as a bad password can provide an attacker a target of opportunity, an opportunity for them to get into that organization and cause far more damage. And it could be based on, you know, a, the whoops factor. You know, somebody did something they didn't mean to do, clicked mm-hmm. on the link in an email, something as, you know, trite as that. And it's not out of malice on the part of the user. So, I, I'm seeing that in different parts and in different industry verticals that we're seeing users are learning that they are part of the solution. And this is where you know security awareness programs need to be gamified in order to enable the users to be part of that solution. Because you know the old idea of running around with the flaming sword of justice and saying the answer is always no does nothing to further the security conversation in an organization. And if you hit, you know, you know, hit the dog across the nose with the rolled up newspaper, the dog's not gonna wanna park anymore. Mm. So you don't want to be doing that to users, that same sort of mentality, because they're going to look at security as an adversary as opposed to a partner. And realistically, security has gotten to that point now, we're the dog that caught the bumper, you know, the car mm. that always goes down the laneway and the crazy dog goes after it. We're that dog and we finally caught the bumper. Now we have to figure out what to do with it. And that is really the fundamental core of it is like, how do we make this better so that the individual user that has that bad password that causes that ripple effect can understand that, yes, this might be a problem and feel empowered to ask the question saying, how can I do a better job here? Okay. And that's a really good segue into thinking about how do you go along that journey? Like if, if someone says to you, right, we realize we've got some problems in our organization and we're not talking about companies that have got massive budgets, you know, and I talk to a big bank in Australia and they say, we've got, you know, 80 people in our security team or 100 people in our security team. Kind of move away from the highly resourced, but maybe just a step back from that. And someone says, look, we realize that we are a supplier, you know, we're a critical supplier to someone else and we want to make sure that 
we're doing all the all the right things that we can possibly do, but we know that we've got some problems. Where would you recommend that they start, and what sort what steps would you guide them through along that journey? And I don't think it's you know we're not talking about a three week security project here. We think they're like you know, if they were taking a longer term strategic view, where would they start and what are some of the things they would go through? Well, it, that's just it. It has to be a strategy because tactical response we've seen that has borne limited. And when you're trying to protect an organization, you're trying to protect, you have a fiduciary responsibility to make sure that, you know, everything's going to keep running. And so when you're looking at this and going through those machinations, you want to make sure that you have a long game. And if you don't have that in place, like zero trust is a great example of the strategy. Some people love it. Some people hate it as because they'll say, oh, it's a marketing buzz term and I'm like, buzzword. And I'm like, yeah, OK, that's fair. But there's meat on the bone because you're looking to protect the workplace, the workload and the workforce within your organization. So you can put, fundamentally put everything into those three buckets. So before you ever talk to any vendor, you want to do your homework internal to your own organization. And what are the outcomes you're trying to achieve in order to support the aspirations of the business? And if you can get a firm answer as to what that is, you have a good starting point. And then you have to go through and do your homework as to, you know, what are the users within your organization? Are they still part of the organization? Is their account still active or did they die five years ago? I may have been through that scenario once myself in my career. You want to know what are the applications, actually is a great example, what are the applications that you need in order to keep the lights on? You know, how is business going to function if this particular application goes down? So you want to have a clear understanding as to what that is in your inventory. And then you want to look at all the assets from, you know, laptops, desktops, servers, whatever it happens to be. You want to make sure you have a clear understanding as to what you are supporting within the organization. Because if you don't know what it is you're protecting, you're going to have exposures and you don't want to have that as part of a defense. So is that how you start to identify some of that security debt? Like, for example, when you start looking at what are the applications that we're using? There was a famous example here in Y2, during Y2K where an airline, which is now defunct and doesn't exist anymore, did an audit of what applications do we have that we need to go and look at for Y2K? Mm-hmm. And they came back with a list of 100,000 100, applications inside their organization. <laughs> now, the definition of application was quite loose at the time, and it included things like user-developed access databases and user-developed monster spreadsheets that link to other stuff so it wasn't just like you know my listicle that i created inside something but these were like you know big big enterprise level tools Mm -hmm. developed by individuals that no one actually no one in it actually knew existed but there was stuff that people made to make their jobs easier so you you know you can identifying all of that stuff is a is probably the starting point you actually nailed it on the head. That is how you identify the security debt within your organization. My favorite example is very much in a parallel to that is the proverbial beige desktop that's running mission critical software that was written by a summer student that nobody knows how to port it off that box. And I've seen that in more organizations than I care to admit. You walk out on the raised floor and inevitably there'll be one somewhere in the data center. (laughs) I mean, one box hiding in the corner that everyone knows does a thing, but no one knows what that thing is. Yep. And everyone's scared to unplug it in case that thing breaks every other thing. <laughs> I'm laughing because I have seen stickies or notes taped to these things saying, do not power off. If this goes off, call this number. And it's just, oh my goodness. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely vexing. So we start at that first step, which is, I mean, the traditional, you know, some people call that an audit. But let's, you know, that, that's actually investigation of the what do I have today so that I understand my risk environment, understand what technical debt I'm carrying over, what, what security debt I'm bringing along that journey as well. Once you get to that point, 
you might feel like you know you're sitting in front of that elephant and you're not sure you know it's all good to be able to say you know take you've got to start with that first bite to eat the elephant but how do you know where to take that first bite? Well, this is where you have to have communications within your organization. You can't do this as a silo. You have to talk to your risk folks, your audit folks, compliance, all these different functions within the organization, even finance, so they can better articulate, you know, if that system goes down, we can't pay anybody. As an example, whereas an IT person might say, oh, if that goes down, we'll just reboot it or whatever and hope for the best. So you need to have that wider conversation. You can't do these things in a silo. A matrix organization is definitely a better way to approach it from a communication path. And this is one thing that we have to be very emphatic about is making sure that we have clear and constant communications within our own organization. Because if we do this whole siloed approach, which we've all lived through at one point in our career, or twice or three times, we are going to be doing ourselves a grave disservice because we are not going to achieve the outcomes that we're trying to get to. That's been amazing. Thanks for bringing all that together. And I think being able to say to people, look, everyone's got some stuff that they bring. You know, we bring, we've all got baggage. It's about identifying that baggage and then saying, right, in order to drop the baggage that we don't need anymore, these are the things we need to do. Or if we need to, you know, invest in new baggage, here's what we need to do to be able to move forward. So we've got, you know, a better platform to move forward with. And, and by virtue of doing that, you can also look at rationalizing systems. And one company that I worked at, I, I constantly bring this example up. We had seven different logging and monitoring solutions within the organization. And it was absolutely frustrating. I had been in the company for just over a week and I found these and I said, like, why do we have all these systems? We actually were able to rationalize them down to a single system. And what had happened is individual projects had spun up over the years and they had a requirement for a monitoring solution to monitor their systems. So rather than look at what was already in place, they went and invested and rolled out a brand new one and then you paid the cost for the software, the hardware, the 23 to 25% per annum maintenance cost. is basically they took all the money that they had, walked out on the field, and set fire to it. <laughs> and it was really a frustrating thing to see that. So when you're going through and looking at within your organization what it is you need to protect, you can also look at, you know, do I need this? Is this particular system Or do still- I already have one? Go and ask someone. Or seven. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the kind of thing where you end up becoming you know, a, a champion for the organization and saving money as opposed to being that detractor that people would always say. It's like, oh, information security is a roadblock or something like that. Which is The department ab- of no. Right. And that's <laughs> abjectly incorrect at this point in the game. I mean, sure, 20 years ago you could get away with saying that. But realistically, you know, security is a business enabler. And especially when you take into context, you know, the light of pandemics and things like that, it really has shown that we can, as security practitioners, enable a business to function no matter what. That's awesome. So just a last question for you. And this is something we're asking all of our guests during season two of the OzCert podcast is we're asking people to tell us about who have been some of the, the great mentors that you've had or some of your cybersecurity superheroes. So this is a great opportunity for you to, to give a shout out to people that have been particularly influential to you. They may not even know they've been particularly influential to you. Well, the funny thing is, is that list is very, very long and frustrating long, long. But that's the beauty of it is within security is as you meet people and you make these connections, you learn from each other and you build out. So when I started, there was no such thing as a master's degree of information security or anything like that. It was literally, you know, here's the book for, you know, this particular system. You learn and figure out how it works. And over time, I've been very fortunate. I've you know, worked with and dealt with a lot of people over the years, and I'm going to list off a few of them. I mean, Howard Schmidt, Andy Ellis, Chris Weisopel, Gene Kim, Wendy Nather, and Space Rogue 
are all great examples of folks that have had a rather significant impact on my career tra- trajectory. And the, the funny thing is nobody ever gets to a point in their career by themselves. They are always done as part of a team. And even though that those people may not realize they're part of that team, part of building you out. So within the security community, we have to be always cognizant of that so that when people come and they're junior in their field and they say, start asking questions, realize that you could be doing a positive thing to impact their future as well as the future of security in general by just having a simple conversation, something to lift them up. Because if we're able to raise all boats, we're going to be better off for it in the long term. That's amazing. Thank you so much for your time today, Dave. Thank you for having me. And now it's over to Beck and Mark. Thank you, Anthony and Dave Lewis. I can't believe we're already at the December podcast. How Where is 2022 gone? I'm once again joined by the lovely Mark Kerry-Smith from Ausset. How are you today, Mark? I'm fabulous, Beck. How are you? I'm super excited. I can see holidays from here. <laughs> the end is in sight. We've almost survived it. There's that light at the end of the tunnel. It's not a train. It's holidays. It's a really great time of year to reflect on where we've come from, what has happened. You know, it's a really reflective time for me. I don't know if you have the same thing where I think, what do I want to achieve next year? What have I achieved so far? So it's always a really nice time to to look at things in in that perspective. That's true. And it's one of those things that I always think I should do and never, ever do. So it's lovely that you oh, can be Here's your so resolution for 2023. Yeah. Oh, I love those too. Yeah. The more resolutions, the better. The, the theme of what I'd like to talk to you today is a bit of going, okay, what have we done this year? What has 2022 brought us and, and what have we achieved? And and what where does that take us for next year? So let's start... and. I mean, the beauty of this year is I think I've been very excited because I get to work with you a lot, which is nice. And one of those things that we've done this year is actually getting out to our members face to face, flying around Australia back to what we used to do a few years ago, which is really nice. And so we did some member meetups and got to talk to people, which was lovely. But what I loved about those was we, we actually did some focus groups with you this year. Can you tell our listeners a bit about what we did there? We were lucky enough to be able to go and talk to people in person, which is nice and something still a novelty (laughs) well it is that's the thing I I think I took it for granted when it was available all the time so Mm. I'm grateful for those opportunities that we've had to actually speak with people and make connections in a way that's difficult to do not in a face-to-face context and for me uh, as a person who's sort of dipped their toe in the water a little bit of qualitative research I I was really happy to run a couple of simple focus groups with our various member meetups to get their opinions and views about cyber threat intelligence, what's important to them, so that we can use that information to inform the services that we provide to members. So that's that's really interesting for me, and it was, there were some really good conversations. Yeah, I think in the moment, members really enjoyed sharing their insights with each other and learning from each other about what they were doing. But from an OSCERT perspective, we've now got a great amount of data that we can look at and and actually use to help shape our services and how we do things, right? Yeah, that's right. And because we, you know, we were clear about holding those discussions within a Chatham House kind of situation, we can take that data in a completely anonymized way and summarize it in a way that informs our services, but doesn't betray any confidences. And because people felt so comfortable sharing their point of view, particularly where that might be a little bit of a sensitive discussion, that was really great information. Nice nice to hear people speak frankly and really share their challenges and 
lots of times solutions too. Yeah, we've got a great membership community. I think I really enjoy that part where people are really helpful, not just talking to us, but to each other, which is great. Yeah, that's right. I, I often find that in running any kind of group activity, whether it's training or these focus groups, it's some of the best conversations are between participants, not between mm-hmm. us and participants. You're just engaging them, yeah. Yeah, just facilitating that opportunity, which is yeah. great. great. So there will be definitely more of those next year, which is exciting. From my perspective, there's going to be a, a big focus on getting member information about what our current services look like, where they think they'd like more information, less information from us, what future services could look like. So I'm very excited to to be launching those early in the new year and, and, and seeing what our members can contribute from that front. Yeah, it's really nice that so many of our members are really happy to help us understand how we can do better for them, to give up their time and to be forthright and, you know, clear about what their challenges are and then hopefully what we can do to help alleviate some of those challenges it's it's good yeah it's great just on that cti feed it's really interesting we've we've had a, a great time this year with some projects which a lot of our members might not know about yet but we actually have the CETAS feed from the government that's into our MIST platform now. So that has been rolled out to all of the higher education sector through our AHEX MISP. That's something that the rest of the members can benefit from next year. So a little teaser there for you guys that you will get something new from us hopefully next year, which will be good. The next thing I'd, I'd like to talk about is training, which has been a huge year for us. It, you know, the, the interruption of COVID was really hard because we were used to that face-to-face training. So pivoting that to our remote delivery has been an interesting one and I am so appreciative of the efforts that you've put into make that engaging and, and actually make that work but we get some really great feedback so it has been a really busy year training we've had some major contracts that have kept you busy with large cohorts I, I'm interested in your perspective of, of how some of those have gone what how do you think it works like why why is this working yeah good question I think you know without giving away the identity of, of some of the people that we've been training, what's been really interesting from my perspective is that we get very broad types of participants. So participants from lots of different professional and cultural backgrounds and that kind of diversity, I think, always makes things more interesting. And again, getting participants to share their experiences and knowledge with one another. Sometimes even when they work for the same organisation but don't necessarily know everything about everyone. So it's nice for them to share their different perspectives, particularly in things like, say, for instance, we might have someone who works in industrial internet of things or someone that works in IT and the perspectives are similar but different. So it's good for them to share their perspectives on cybersecurity. But to to your point about why it's worked and in lots of cases, I think it's just, I think it's our philosophy of, trying really hard to have a a a learner focused philosophy so that we're trying to do as much as possible what engages people to learn because no one learns when they're bored or asleep despite the promises of subliminal learning (laughs) i don't think it actually works that would Um, be nice (laughs) it would be nice but i can attest from the scientific rigor of my lazy teenage self trying to record class notes as, a, as an alternative form of studying, it didn't actually work. Having lots of different types of learning opportunities and activities, and that's something that I'm really excited we're going to expand on next year because one of the great things about being part of the University of Queensland is that we can leverage some of the learning engagement tools that the university already uses and amazing resources like learning advisors, people that 
think about innovative educational practices for a living. Mm -hmm. Those people are generally a joy to work with, in my experience. So we're going to leverage a new, for us, learning engagement tool and changing our approach to adopt more of a flipped learning approach. Not completely flipped learning because it's not really appropriate for our delivery, but what it means is that we can take out some of the learning content that can be a little bit dry and move that into pre-learning activities that we can deliver in a really engaging, clear and transparent way. So it's very clear to learners, do these three things, it will take you approximately this amount of time. And that sets us up so that when we have our face-to-face time together, whether that's via Teams or other, whether that's actual face-to-face, which we still do occasionally and is awesome, but we can also do delivery via Zoom or Teams, We have more time to do those really fun and engaging learning activities like small group exercises or large group exercises or just generally having a chat, ad hoc discussions. Sometimes that's where you get the most interesting information exchanges, just people saying, well, from my experience, it's slightly different or how does this relate to my context? And and having more time for those really fun experiences I think will be better for the learners and for the trainers. Yeah, there's always been a lot of content to get through. It's a hard thing to squeeze all those concepts into one. So it'll be really nice to to do some of that prior learning. And it's great reference for people to go back to even post course, right? To, That's true. To go back and restudy some of those things and have a better understanding. Yep. That's great. And on top of that, we'll have some new courses because, you know, while we're doing some improvements to the current, it's nice to expand that library of options for people. Can you tell us a little bit about the one that we've got for executives? Yeah, so we're creating a new course pretty much right now, which is going to be called Introduction to Cyber Resilience for Executives. And that course is targeted towards a cohort for executive managers, C-suites, board members, so that they understand cyber resilience fundamentals, how it applies, how cybersecurity risk applies to enterprise risk and their role in helping their organization to become more resilient in the face of cyber disruptions. And yeah, we're really excited about that. That's, that's, That's come about, well, we knew it was needed, but again, some of those discussions that we've had with members that are willing to give up their time and talk to us about what their needs are that that's been really great to inform it's been a common theme hasn't it that's come up yeah that's right if you create those opportunities for people to give you feedback and and to tell you what they want then a lot of the times you get really great info and we're lucky to have a member base that's willing to share with us so on top of that we've also got a follow-up from our intro to cyber for it professionals which i have to say is one of our most popular courses you know it's a it's such a good staple and there's so many it people that have been tasked with cyber in their job but how are they going to get that upskilled to cyber so it'll be nice to do a follow-up from that one and have our intermediate range as well as a new data governance one yeah that's right it's been i think it's been on the cards for a little while that intro to cyber for it professionals is a pretty popular course and lots of people have done it as you say, you know, we, we talk about the fact that cybersecurity should be everybody's responsibility, but it's another thing to give people the knowledge that they need to really make that meaningful, mm-hmm. especially for people that come from IT backgrounds. So that's why we're de- developing the intermediate level course for, for those, for that sort of cohort, to expand upon some concepts that we touch on in our intro course, but don't have time to really delve into. Mm-hmm. So that should be really good. 
Yeah, I'm I'm actually really excited about the data governance one. Data governance. We've been talking about that for a little while, but I think, you know, everything that's happened this year mm. from data breaches is a is a really good connection to how do you even protect yourself if you don't know what data you have, what that level of you know, knowledges, who has access. So I think that's going to be a really good course that's going to help people start to really look at things in a more holistic way. Yes, absolutely. I think it's one of those things that we kind of intuitively understand, cybersecurity professionals, that you need to know where your information is and how sensitive it is in order to protect it appropriately. But if you don't have good data governance practices, then you're really, you're really creating challenges for yourself because you don't want to make assumptions about what your information is, where it lives, and what how sensitive it is. Because you know what they say about assumptions, don't you, Ben? They say a few things about it, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, it it wouldn't be a podcast if I didn't mention the conference. <laughs> yes, people will wonder exactly what what's happening. Where did it go? But you know, obviously, also 2022, it was really great. Once again, you know, that theme of that face-to-face was a big one. Everyone was very excited. It was very engaging. We had over 900 people involved in the conference this year, which was great. And I just really love that community vibe that we get there. So Mm. I'm really excited about next year. Our theme is Back to the Future, which is really fun. Very much that, you know, the idea of reflecting on where we've come from, but also where are we heading? Mm, right. mm. And we got some pretty cool iconography from what I understand. Yes, very cool. And we, yeah, so... Call for presentations, big one, opening, so a sponsorship, we are hitting the round running. You will hear a lot from us as the year kicks off for January, so we're doing a few new things. Um, We really want as many people to submit to that call for presentations as possible, so there will be a webinar in the second week of January about helping people identify a topic, which you will be on the panel of. Yeah, that's right. We really wanted to encourage especially first-time speakers who may have an aspiration to speak at a conference but may need a little bit of assistance in terms of feeling confident enough to do it and especially getting over the hurdle of thinking they don't have anything to say or anything to contribute that other people will want to hear. So we really want to help people get through some of those challenges in a supportive way and help them you know, spread their wings and do something which can be really, really rewarding. Yeah, of course. So if that sounds appealing, we'd love you to join the webinar. Even if it's just to hear some examples of what other people are coming up with, it might give you some inspiration. So I hope that people can join us for that. And yes, some keynote announcements are in the works, so they'll be happening in early 2023 as well. The the only thing I haven't mentioned for next year is it's also its 30th birthday. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, can't forget that. Yeah, so 30 years of also in March next year, which is, it's just crazy to think about all the things that have happened in that time of history of Ulcert. We had a really great team session yesterday where we were joined by the lovely Danny Smith, who was one of the first Ulcert staff members. So he shared some really great stories about the early days about how we were formed. And I, I love that session. I hope we can do some more with Danny and I've definitely invited him to the conference next year, which will be fun. But yeah, so next year will be a big theme about bringing out some people from Ossert's history and and having some of those conversations, a lot of reminiscing, I think. Yeah, it it was a really interesting discussion that we had with Danny and really good to hear some of those stories and just kind of reflect on the philosophy of why Ossert was created in the first place and also reflect on the the legacy that, that... was formed by those early days and that we carry through to the yeah. services we provide I today. Love, 
a lot of the values are still very much the same, a lot of the intentions. And I think it was great for some of our newer staff members that might not have known where they've come from to sort of fill in those gaps and, and have a better understanding. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, mm-hmm. true. Lovely. Right. Well, I think that's enough from us. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. And see you next year. Thanks for listening to this episode of Share Today, Save Tomorrow, the AusCert podcast. And thanks to Dave and to Beck and Mark. We'll be back next month with another episode of Share Today, Save Tomorrow with new guests and a look into the Australian cybersecurity scene. And on behalf of the whole team at AusCert, we wish you a Merry Christmas, a safe holiday period and a prosperous and fun-filled 2023. If you want to know more about AusCert, be sure to visit auscert.org.au.